before I get started. He's kind of standing there looking official and everything, so I thought we better. Okay, good morning, everybody. We're having a good weekend and an extra long weekend for most of us, hopefully. Um, we'll begin this morning with our call to worship from Psalm 57. And we're doing most of the psalm, which I always find helpful to do when you can, because it just gives you a, a fuller picture of what's going through the psalmist's mind. And this morning we'll see the psalmist cry out for mercy from God several times, for God to bring his salvation from heaven. And even though these evil men are surrounding him, setting traps for him, that they themselves have fallen into it. And we see him ultimately exalt the Lord from the heavens, that his glory fills the earth. And, you know, this was David writing the psalm, and he was experiencing these things firsthand, these people that were coming against him. But in many ways, this is actually pointing to Christ, who would have traps set for him, not only by Judas and the people that came against him, but ultimately Satan. And Satan thought this trap that he laid of this death of Christ on the cross was going to be what brought down this son of man. And yet it was the trap that he himself fell into. So, and these words can bring great comfort to us, but just wanted to point that out this morning. So if you want to stand with me, we will, um, I'll read the bold section if you'll read with me after the non-bold. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amidst fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Amen. If you want to turn to hymn number three, we'll sing Holy, Holy, Holy.
Good morning. If you have your Bibles, or just read your handout here, if you would turn to 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Now, I'm pretty sure everybody here is pretty familiar with uh, John's epistles. Um, here in the first chapter of 1 John, he just got done saying, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then here in chapter 3, he's saying, uh, everyone who's practicing sin, what's that all about? Do we have a contradiction here? No, there's no contradictions in the word. We definitely here don't believe in contradictions of the word. So what this is talking about here is the first part in chapter one, he's talking about, look, we're all sinners, every single one of us. We're saved by grace. What this second part is saying is that if you continually practice your sin, if there's no repentance in your heart, if you're not affected by the sin that you're committing, if there's no I know this is wrong, but I can't help it. If there's just an open, blatant practice of sin habitually, then there's a, you need to be concerned about, about where you are with your walk in the Lord. So just in case someone was reading that and they said, well, I just thought he just got done saying, didn't John? I mean, yeah, I know he was old when he wrote this, but didn't he just say that uh, everybody sinned? So there's that. <clears throat> If you would all pray with me this prayer of confession. Heavenly Father, you are the great king, the ruler of all the earth. You created man in your image, perfect and upright. And yet because of Adam's sin and disobedience and ours, death came upon us all. And we, like Adam, have broken your holy law. Forgive us, Lord, for the sake of Christ. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to look to Christ, the last and the better Adam. Amen. You want to remain standing and turn to him 216. We'll sing Solid Rock.
turn in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions, adoption as sons. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son, that you've adopted us into your family, Lord, that we can call you Father, and yet you can call us sons and daughters, that we can walk in your wholeness and mercy and grace. Father, I lift up all the churches this morning there throughout, throughout the world. Father, I ask that your spirit would come down in a mighty way, that you would prick our hearts, that you would, you would make our hearts softer and more receptive of, of your Holy Spirit as you have your way with us. As we yield ourselves to you, Lord, pour yourself out on us in a wonderful way through your word. Lord, we ask for, for the, the, the dire situations that are in right now. I, on a personal note, thank you for bringing my son-in-law back home from Afghanistan. Father, we pray for those who are still left over there. We pray, Lord, for those who know you. We pray for those who need to know you. Father, may this time, the turmoil in all over the world, the turmoil here in the United States that we call home, may this be a time where we are brought to the end of ourselves and see how desperately we need you. We need you, Lord. Let us be, let us be used by your hand in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our, an orthodox catechism, I really, I'm really glad you started the catechism thing every other week. I, I could do it every week. <laughs> uh, for those who are not, you know, I wasn't raised with catechisms. I wasn't raised with confessions. This is so good that it answers the questions that you may have already had and may ask, answer questions that you didn't even know you had. So I really appreciate it these confessions and these uh, catechisms. So the question here this morning is, why is he called Christ? Which means anointed. And the answer, if you would all read with me, because he is, he is ordained, ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. He was ordained and anointed to be our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us. And he was also ordained and anointed to be our eternal king, who governs us by his word and spirit, and who defends and preserves us in that salvation he has purchased for us. 
Amen. You guys can be seated this morning. Good morning again. It's good to see you all. It's good to be back. Um, we had a we were gone last week. We were in Michigan. A much needed rest for me and my wife and family. And uh, thanks to Stephen from Exodus PCA, he came and and preached the word last week and gave me a break. That was that was great. We got to go to a, a church in Holland, Michigan called Harbor Reformed Baptist. It was great to worship with the brothers and sisters there and I described it like it was like feeling at home away from home, you know, just being around like-minded people, singing with them and just um it was a sweet time and restful for us and it gave me a new appreciation because I was able to sit with my wife during the service and gave me a new appreciation for watching kids during the service. You know, I know it's hard, but firsthand it's uh, just, yeah, it's amazing what everyone does to watch their kids to be a part of the service. So, so yeah, it was great. So it's good to be back. It's good to be, you know, I'd say it's a home away from home, but there's nothing like being here with you all. So, yeah, if you want to turn to John chapter 3... We'll be finishing up John chapter 3 this morning, which depending on at what speed you like the Bible to be taught, maybe this is really fast or really slow, but we're going to finish John chapter 3 today, Lord willing. And we don't want to forget where we've been in John, right? John begins with this great sentence that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That we see from the beginning that this Word, this Son of God, is Divine is eternal, is distinct from the Father, but is God nonetheless. And we talked this morning about our two-natured Redeemer, that he's fully God, fully man, and that we see in verse 14 of the prologue that this word took on flesh, that he became what he was not, human, never ceasing to be what he always was, God. And it's just so important that we understand that as we look at our text this morning. We can't forget where we've been in John's gospel and all these statements that John has already made about who Christ is. And it's so important that we understand who John is presenting here, the person and work of Christ, because we're going to see John the Baptist do the same thing today. And in John chapter 3, it begins with this account of Nicodemus, this religious leader, a Pharisee, who thinks he knows a lot about Christ. He thinks he knows all the right answers, but we see that he ultimately has missed the most important thing, that he has not been born again. He has not been renewed by the Spirit of God to understand the kingdom of God. And we'll see that a similar thing is also true of John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, that they are not seeing Christ and his kingdom rightly, that they're seeing these outward things but they're missing what is really going on. And there's even a jealousy that wells up inside of them because of Christ's ministry and the people that are following him. And so this morning, hopefully we'll see that even though there's this jealousy, even though there's this issue with John's disciples, John doesn't just correct their practice right away. He doesn't just say, stop doing this, start doing this. But he actually begins with doctrine, with theology, with orthodoxy. He starts talking about who Jesus is, what he came to do, why he is so important. 
and we'll see that that ultimately will affect their practice and their devotion to God. But he begins with um, who Christ is, and he points them ultimately to the person and work of Christ. So I'm going to read the passage, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll look at the passage. So we'll start in verse 22 and go to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us your revelation, your plan of redemption for us, your people, that by seeing the word this morning, empowered by the Spirit, we might be changed, we might be renewed, we might be joyful, as John was joyful. And I pray this morning that we would see Christ more clearly and that it would have an effect on us, our desires, and our actions, our practice. And that ultimately we would not only be, not only be those that just believe in the Son, but obey the Son, that seek to live a life in accordance to your word and out of love and out of gratitude for what you have graciously done for us in the person and work of Christ. Lord, we need your help this morning. We cannot do this on our own. And we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. I'm glad my parents are here this morning uh, because <laughs> we're to, we're to, I was talking about jealousy a little bit this morning about um, this idea of jealousy of John's disciples here being jealous of these people that were following Jesus. And I say that because we can all relate to jealousy in some ways, right? 
we can relate to. We see it in our kids. They want the toy that the other kid has. They become jealous over that. Or we see it in our own lives, whether it's, you know, maybe we fought with our siblings. We're all familiar with jealous, jealousy. And one of the first stories that came into my mind was a story about myself when I was younger. <laughs> I, I didn't see myself as a very competitive kid growing up, but there was this time we were on vacation with um, a family friend of mine. His name was Mark Trimble. And we were doing these go-kart races, and, and he beat me in this go-kart race, and I got him in a headlock. And, <laughs> and, and I don't even remember what I did. Maybe they can tell you after more of what I did. But, you know, I, it wasn't just that I wanted what he had, right? This victory, this victory lap. But I resented him for it. I was jealous, right? Because covetousness is just wanting what someone else has, right? That's the Ten Commandment, thou shalt not covet. But jealousy is more than that. It's not just wanting what someone else has. It's being resentful. It's wanting their demise, their downfall. Jealousy is closer to envy if we want to think about it like that. It's really what gives birth after we let covetousness come into our hearts when it goes unchecked. And so we see that in our passage this morning. We see that these disciples of John, these followers, are sort of influenced by these Jews that they become jealous of Jesus and his ministry. They become jealous of the people that are following him, these disciples, the people that, are, that he's baptizing. And it's very interesting because we see that contrasted with John, the Baptist, that he's not jealous about this. He's joyous. He's not jealous that people are leaving him and that Jesus has more people than him. He's joyous about this. And he actually corrects their thinking. And as I've already said and hinted at, that he doesn't just correct their practice, but he corrects their doctrine. He goes on this tangent about Christology, which is the study of who Christ is, where he came from, what he's bearing witness to, that all these things... He's pointing his people to the greatness of Christ. And so hopefully we'll see this morning and even in our concluding verse that right theology, right doctrine, right understanding of God should lead us to right practice of God. Right devotion, right thinking and practice about who God is. So we'll look at three things this morning. In verses 22 through 26, we'll see the jealousy of the Jews. The jealousy of the Jews. In verses 27 through 30, we'll see the joy of John. And then finally, we'll see the greatness of Jesus. So we pick up in verse 22. This is after the account with Nicodemus. After all these things have been said, we find out that Jesus and his disciples are now baptizing. Right at the beginning of John's gospel, John the Baptist, he's this man clothed in camel's hair, eating locusts and honey. This last Old Testament prophet, he's baptizing people. He's calling them to repent, to turn. But now we see Jesus and his disciples doing the same thing. They're calling these people to repent, to turn from their sin, to believe in the gospel. And we find out in chapter 4, verse 2, that Jesus himself is not baptizing, but it's only the disciples that are baptizing. And we see that there's this argument you can see in verse 25, over purification. That some of John's disciples and some of the Jews are fighting over purification. 
And if you look back, if you remember when Jesus turned the water into wine, he used these stone jars that were used for purification. So there's this discussion about purification. And for the Jews at that time, not only was there Mosaic laws about purification that they had to follow, but there was also these washings and purifications that they, they themselves had added to the Mosaic law. And this was tradition. They would have all these different washings and cleansings and purifications. And I say that because it's interesting that they're fighting over purification here, which tells us something, that these baptisms, right? We have John the Baptist, his baptism. We have Jesus and his baptism. And they're fighting over purification. And it's, it's very interesting because... John and his disciples and Jesus and his disciples are calling people to repent. They're pointing them to the gospel. They're pointing them to this idea of being baptized, of being washed and cleansed. And these people are fighting over purification. They want to know whose baptism is better. <laughs> Should we go to John? Should we do him? Should we do Jesus? Should we do both? Right? They, they are purely wrapped up in the ceremony, the ceremonialism, Right? They just want to know, okay, which one's better? Which one should I do? Should I do both? They're arguing over these purifications. Is it a tradition? Should we do washing? How should we do these things? And they're entirely missing the point. And how often do we do this in our own lives, in our own Christian walks, right? It becomes more about ceremonialism. We do the same things each week. You know, it could be during the Lord's Supper. It could be in prayer. It's so tempting for us to default to this view where we go through the steps, we do the things, and A.W. Pink, who was a, uh, an American theologian, said this about this passage. He said, this exposes the condition of the Jews and of us. They were concerned only with matters of ceremonialism. Religious they were, but for a savior they felt no need. They preferred to wrangle over questions of purification rather than go to the Lord Jesus for the water of life. That they were concerned only with these washings, with the ceremony of everything, and they were fighting over these things, and they were not concerned with what baptism really was about. That it was supposed to point the people to their death, to themselves and their new life in Christ. It was not something to just argue over in this way, but it was rather to point them for their need for Christ, who is the living water. And so we see that this discussion was between John's disciple and a Jew, but it starts to influence John's disciples, right? They'd been following John. They'd been seeing him call people to repentance. And they even call him rabbi, which means teacher. So they, these people were following John. And yet this sort of thinking had influenced them, this worldly thinking. They even try to tempt John here, if you want to think about it like that. This thinking had influenced them. They're saying, everybody is going to Jesus. You're losing followers. You're losing disciples. What do we need to do to get them back, right? How can we, can we start a media campaign? Can we start a marketing scheme? How can we get these people back? How are you going to get these followers to follow you, John. They're leaving you. They're going to Jesus. And we are very familiar with this in our day, right? This idea of pragmatism. 
in the world, we're in the, we're in the age of social media. It's all about how many followers you can get, how many uh, people can follow you, this culture of followers and influencers and all this stuff. And even that has penetrated the church in a lot of ways, right? It's about how many people can follow, how many people can you get, and we sort of disguise it as growing the kingdom, but really it's not always about that, sadly. And so this thinking can penetrate us. And so John is not fooled by this. John's not fooled by this, that there's a jealousy amongst the Jews, amongst his disciples. But as we look at verse 27, we see John is not fooled by this. He doesn't succumb to this temptation. He knows his purpose. He knows why he is there. And he points to four things in verses 27 through 30. First, he points to God's sovereignty. He points to God's sovereignty. They're saying, people are leaving. People are going. What are you going to do? And he says, God's sovereign. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. He's like, you think I'm in control? (laughs) Do you think I am able to control this situation? No. I can't control my number of followers. I can't even control what you guys are thinking. I can't control my office. I'm the one who was sent to bear witness. God is sovereign. Secondly, he points to his own testimony. If you look back at chapter 1, we remember John is this great witness. He said these exact words that he says, he said, I am not the Christ. If you remember, he says, I'm a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way. I'm just coming to prepare the way. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not these people. I'm the one preparing the way for the one. I'm the forerunner. It's not about me. I'm only bearing witness to him, the one promised in the Old Testament. And then he gives this human example of a bridegroom and a bride. He says, I'm just the friend, the best man of the bridegroom. And the best man, the friend of the bridegroom, is not meant to make the whole day about him, right? If you think about a wedding, if the best man stole the show and made it all about him, he's saying, I am the friend of the bridegroom. I'm not the bridegroom. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Christ is the groom. He's the one that has come to purchase his bride I'm meant to point people to him. And finally, so we've seen he points to God's sovereignty. He points to his own testimony. He points to a human example. And then finally, he points to this joy that he has. This joy of selflessness. That the world (laughs) likes to tell us the opposite of this, right? The world likes to tell us that the true joy is found in you, in you pursuing your own desires, yourself. And there's some truth to this, right? I just went on a vacation. <laughs> it's good to take breaks, to take care of yourself. You need to do all these sorts of things. But John is saying, ultimately, my joy is complete. Why? Because his joy, John knows that his joy comes not ultimately from himself, but from pointing to Christ. From pointing to Christ. He says, he must increase, I must decrease. That John knew the Old Testament. He knew that it was clear 
that there would be a Messiah, one that would come, that would bring this better exodus, this one that would save the people, not just from slavery in Egypt, but slavery to sin and death. And he's saying, that one is here. The bridegroom is here. The Christ is here. And I'm pointing to him. And you're missing it. (laughs) You're trying to be worried about followers. You're trying to be worried about me. It's not about me. It is about the Christ. He's here. Go to him. And they had gotten it backwards. They had gotten it backwards, but John corrects that. He says, he must increase, I must decrease. And then, finally, we come to the section, verses 31 through 36. He points to the greatness of Christ, the greatness of Jesus. So we've seen the jealousy of the Jews, we've seen the joy of John, and now we see the greatness of Jesus. That he points to the evidence and the proof for why Christ is better than him. Why Christ is the one that they should have their focus and attention on. Because why is John doing this? Why doesn't John want followers for himself? Why is he pointing people to Christ? Why does he want himself to decrease? Why does he want Christ to increase? And he gives three reasons in verse 31 through 35. Three reasons. First is that Jesus is from above. You see there in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. That he is no mere human, right? He was not just born in his mother womb, that he existed before then. He comes from heaven. He has a divine heavenly origin. He is from heaven. As we read in our um, Psalm 57 this morning, I, I think John was thinking about this psalm. It says, this is what it says in Psalm 57. He will send from heaven and save me. That God's salvation comes from heaven. And he's saying Christ is from above. And not only that, but we see that Christ alone is God and is from above. We see that and it says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. That God alone is from above. And he, he points out the contrast here that he is from the earth. He who is from the earth speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. So there's this contrast between Christ, even though it looks like he was just born on the earth, he's not. He's from heaven. He existed before then. I'm just from the earth. <laughs> I speak in an earthly way. He is so much greater because he is from above. He's from heaven. That was first. Secondly, he points to his Christ's divine witness, his divine testimony. That not only is he above all because he is from above, but he bears witness about what he has seen and heard. We see that in verse 32. That he bears witness about what he has seen and heard. He is the bringer of heavenly truth. That because he's from above, he can bring truth that's not earthly, but heavenly. He has a divine witness that he is bearing these great realities that are from the Father. And if you want to turn with me to a couple pages to John chapter 8, we see this reinforced in the words of Christ. He says this to the Pharisees. Jesus said to them, when you have seen the Son of Man lifted up, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. So we see there the speech of Christ 
is not his own, it's from the Father. And that he who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So, not only in what Christ says, but what he does, it's from the Father and it's pleasing to the Father. And this is contrasted with the Pharisees. And he says, I speak, in verse 38, he says, I speak of what I have seen with my Father. You do what you have heard from your Father. And the Pharisees don't get it. They say, Abraham is our Father. We're from Abraham. We're Jews. We're, we're of this holy line. We're good. And he says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But yet you seek to kill me. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they say, our father is God. And he says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not to do my own accord, but he who sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot hear, bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear is that you are not of God. Very strong words for the Pharisees there, but it sheds light on what we are seeing in John 3 because he says he bears witness to what he's seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. That these people are hearing the words of Christ, they're hearing these heavenly truths, these heavenly things, and yet they're not receiving his testimony. We've seen that throughout John. Even in John chapter 2, John chapter 3, people are not receiving his testimony. We saw in chapter 3 earlier that it's because they love the darkness. The same thing with the Pharisees. They love the darkness. So we've not only seen Christ contrasted from heavenly and earthly realities, but now we're seeing the contrast between he speaks from his Father, who is the God of all the universe, and these people are not receiving his testimony because they are of their father, the devil. But that is why no one receives his testimony, as we saw in earlier in John, that they have not been born of God. That whoever has been born of God receives his testimony and sets his seal to this, that God is true. We see that in verse 33, that God is true. So we've seen that John is pointing people to Christ. Why? Because he's above all. He has a divine witness and testimony. And finally, in verse 34, we see that it's because he's been given the Spirit without measure. Been given the Spirit without measure. That John is saying, Jesus is the special anointed servant of the Lord. This one that was promised in the Old Testament. If you've read Isaiah, which I'm sure John the Baptist had. Isaiah is full of this language of this servant who's going to come. Who's going to be given the Spirit without measure. The Spirit is going to be upon him. And that's contrasted with the Old Testament prophets and priests and kings, right? They were given the Spirit for a time. This servant that's going to come is going to have the Spirit without measure. No end. And if you have the time, you can turn with me to Isaiah 61. 
Isaiah 61, where we hear the servant speak. This servant, who's been talked about, is now speaking in Isaiah 61, and he says this in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. That the servant is saying, the Spirit of God is upon me, because he's anointed me. What did we read in our confession of faith this morning? He is ordained and anointed. He's ordained and anointed. Ordained and anointed. He said it three times, right? That this servant is going to be anointed with the Spirit. And if you turn to verse 10 in Isaiah 61, it says this. This is the servant speaking. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. Interesting. That in Isaiah 61, this servant is not only given the spirit without measure, but is pictured as a bridegroom and as a priest with righteousness to bring salvation to his people. I think John was looking at Isaiah 61. That John understood that Jesus was this servant of Isaiah 61. He was the one that would be anointed with the Spirit, without measure. He was the bridegroom that would be clothed in righteousness, that would bring salvation to his people. It's amazing to think about. That all of this language, the bridegroom, the salvation, the Spirit without measure, is all from the Old Testament. And this is amazing because... As we read the Old Testament, this promise of the Spirit is not just for the servant, but it is also a promise of the new covenant. What does it say in Jeremiah? I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in all my ways. I'll give you a new heart. And this language that John ends up using of eternal life is all wrapped up in that. That when the Spirit comes, New hearts will be given. Eternal life will be given. The Spirit will be poured out and dwell in God's people. These are the the fancy word is eschatological promises of the new covenant. That the Spirit would be poured out and that God's people would receive salvation through this new and better covenant. That's a lot (laughs) right there. And so I say that because this last verse is very tricky and very interesting says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So we can say this, that those who have been born again, John chapter 3, given new hearts, been given the Spirit, they believe in the Son, and they have eternal life. Not just will have, but they have it now. That's what John is pointing his people to. Right? The Son has come. Believe in Him. Remember John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Believe in the Son, and you will have eternal life. But John contrasts that with these words. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, 
but the wrath of God remains on him. That there are those who believe the Son and obey the Son, they have life. They have eternal life. But those who do not believe, who do not obey the Son, do not have life. And a couple things to point out about this passage. We see first that the wrath of God is real. The wrath of God is real. It says at the end, the wrath of God remains on them that do not obey the Son. That this is implying that the wrath of God is on everyone. And it remains on those that do not believe, right? We see this from Romans 1. It says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven... For all people, Jew and Gentile, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That this wrath of God is real. It's for both Jew and Gentile. There's no escaping it. And we see the second thing here in this verse 36. We see the necessity of obedience to the Son. That to not obey the Son is to not see life. To not have life. And we have to pause right here. Because the first thing that should be going through your head is, is John here talking about salvation by works? Is he trying to say, okay, you you need to believe, yes, but you also need to obey. And if you obey, then you will be justified before God. I thought we believed in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. What is John talking about here? What is this obedience to the sun. So we have to be careful, right? We should have these red flags pop up when we see passages like this. And this passage has been twisted to say that. It has been twisted to say that, yes, you need to believe, but you also need to have these works, and then you will be justified before God. So how do we handle this verse? How does that, how do we, how do we understand this? There's two main errors that we can, we can succumb to. The first one is legalism. Legalism. The fancy word is neonomianism. Legalism, which says, not only do you need to believe, but you need to obey these certain things, and it usually means adding to the law of God, then you will be justified before God on the last day. So it's Christ's work, Christ's righteousness, plus some of your own. The opposite error is license or antinomianism, licentiousness, if you've ever heard that word. It's to say, what we do doesn't really matter. God's law doesn't really apply to our lives. We just need to believe, I love to sin. God likes to forgive. What a good relationship, right? That's license. That's antinomianism. So we, we want to avoid those errors. Those are errors. Those are wrong. So how do we understand this passage? How do we understand verse 36? What is the solution to this problem? And maybe even a more pointed question, because we know that the wrath of God is real and it remains on everyone who does not believe, how is this wrath removed? Because this wrath of God is real. Romans 1 says it. How is it removed? How can those that have the wrath of God on them now have eternal life? How is this possible? Well, the solution to verse 36 and the solution to this question is Christ. It's Christ. 
It's the gospel of Christ. As um, Sinclair Ferguson said, the, the answer to legalism is not license, and the answer to license is not legalism, but the answer to both is the gospel of Christ. That what John is trying to say through all these words and through all this theology, he's trying to say Christ is the one promised in the Old Testament. He would be given the Spirit without measure. He would be the one that is from above who utters the words of God, and he would come to fulfill the law, as we said in our assurance of pardon this morning, that he would take the wrath that we deserved and that he would fulfill the law of God perfectly, not only showing the importance of the law of God, right? So the person that's licensed, licentious or antinomian can't say the law doesn't matter because Christ came to fulfill the law perfectly to show its importance. But he also came to show our inability to keep that law, that we cannot keep it perfectly. We need a substitute. We need someone to stand in our place and do what we could not. So the answer to these is the gospel of Christ. And it's important that we understand how to understand verses like this, that Yes, belief is important, but it, b- belief of faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by a new heart, by new affections, by these evidences or fruit of God's work in us. So a couple things to close with today. If we say we are Christ and yet are not obeying Christ, we are a walking contradiction, Right? And we see this in the world too frequently. That if we say we are Christ and yet we're not obeying the, the Son, we're a walking contradiction. But John doesn't leave us without hope here because we see that true repentance and faith, true repentance and faith will yield a desire to obey the Son. That this new birth that Jesus talked about in John 3 gives birth to a new heart, new affections, new desires. And as, as Daryl mentioned this morning, John later in his epistle in 1 John says, we will sin, <laughs> we will fail, we will fall short. But we need to confess our sin, right? He says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. But if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us new hearts. He's given us his spirit. But not only that, he's given us the church. He's given us believers that can encourage us in our Christian walk. Exhort us to not be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. How easy sin gets in our hearts and we get hardened. And he's given us his spirit, but also other believers to encourage us, to exhort us, not to harden our hearts to the deceitfulness of sin, but to press on in the Christian faith and walk to believe in the Son and be changed. And he's given us the means of grace, the Lord's Supper, baptism, to examine ourselves. It's a time where we bring our sin before God, say, I've fallen short, but I know you've made a way. And... The last thing I'll point out is we see the triune work of God in salvation, right? The Father sent the Son. The Son pours out His Spirit. It's amazing to think about that our redemption 
is carried out by the work of the triune God. From start to finish, not one thing can be received unless it's given from heaven. How great a gift we have from heaven this morning. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. And even though these passages are difficult and weighty and heavy, and if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we can read this passage and see all the ways we have not obeyed the Son. We can see all the ways that we have not followed after righteousness, that we followed our own desires, we followed our own temptations, and we have succumbed to sin. But we know that for those that confess their sin, that are pricked in their heart by their sin, that you've made a a means of redemption, a means of justification, and it's not our work, it's not our perfect obedience, because if it was, we would have no hope. But it is the perfect, spirit-anointed servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stood in our place, took the wrath that we deserved, so that we might have eternal life, who fulfilled the covenant of works perfectly on our behalf, so that we might eat of the tree of life. Help us this morning, Lord, to trust in him, to not only look inwardly, but to look to him, the finished work of Christ on the cross for sinners like us. Help us to be changed this morning, and may we glory in your great redemption that you have worked for us, and not look to ourselves, but look to you. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. We come now to the time of our service where we partake of the Lord's Supper, right? So we come here on the Lord's Day, this day that we set aside to worship Him, to rest. And now we partake of the Lord's Supper. So we have the Lord's Day and the Lord's Supper, meaning these things are His. These aren't a man-made invention. They're not something that I came up with. They are God's means of grace to His people. And they're meant to not only you know, cause us to look at ourselves and the sin that we've committed, but they're also meant to look, point our eyes ultimately to Christ, whose body was broken, his blood was spilled. And I'm so thankful that we do this every week, that we have a reminder that we can't leave this service without pointing to the finished work of Christ, that even if I botch the sermon or if I totally mess it up, <laughs> Every week we're pointed to Christ, to his finished work, to our salvation we have in Christ. So um, we're reminded of our Lord's words on the night he was betrayed. He took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That we are actively proclaiming. It's not about us. It's about the Lord. It's about his death for us. And we have a great hope this morning. So as we come, may we come confessing our sin, seeing the ways that we fall short, seeing the ways we have not obeyed the Son. But ultimately... We're called to rejoice. We're called to have the joy that John had. He saw the Son. He said, that's the Messiah. And he said, my joy is complete. Because he knew it wasn't about him. It was about the Lord Jesus. So let's pray this morning.
Lord, we thank you for this means of grace that you've given us to nourish our souls, to give us spiritual life, that we have a great hope this morning that this is not just a mere memory of what you've done, but it's an active proclaiming and a future looking to the new heavens and the new earth where at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the bridegroom will have his bride, his perfect people that have been sanctified by his blood. We have the marriage supper of the Lamb where all will be made new, tears will be wiped away, mourning will be no more. And we look forward to that this morning as we experience it in part for those that have eternal life. We look forward to eternal life with you in glory. Be with us this morning. Help us to look to those things as we eat and as we drink. In your name we pray. Amen. If you want to form a line and grab the elements, go back to your seat and we'll partake together. each week that this bread that we break is a communion with the body of Christ that we can take, eat, remember, and believe that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of all of our sins. And in the same way, this cup represents the new covenant, the blood of Christ spilled so that we might be cleansed, that our robes might be washed, so we can take, drink, remember, and believe that Christ's blood was spilt for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Amen. If you want to stand, this morning we'll respond to God's great work of redemption. Um, by singing Psalm 23.
can be found in hymn 319, and we'll sing it to the tune of Amazing Grace. graciously given to us. So may we pray for our offerings this morning. Lord, we thank you for all that you've given us. As we taught the kids this morning, that you not only made us, but you take care of us. That just as the lilies in the field have water and sun, so you care for us in so many ways. And so often we forget those things. And we, we, we don't remember your goodness. And so now we give a portion of what you've given us back to you, not to earn anything, but because of 
your greatness and your goodness and out of gratitude for how much you've given to us. Would you use these offerings for your kingdom, for the growth of your church, that the gospel might go to the nations and that you might be glorified in the praises of your people. We pray all these things in your son's name. stand with me, or if you're already standing, we will sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye benediction from Hebrews. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you might do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace as you go. Special. Yeah, I'll get my